Well, it surely is a big blunder when the preacher fails to hit record on the podcast. So what this is going to be is a redo of the sermon that we had, the responsive reading and the sermon that we had this morning at the Blue Point Bible Church. I had shared from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We did that for our responsive reading here as the congregation. And I placed emphasis and brought our attention to verse... 33. And I had shared, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I made mention of the fact that this is a beautiful passage. However, many people, and early on in my walk, I had questioned, what is the kingdom of God? And oftentimes I was given more so presuppositional answers than a biblical answer. And then I remember that day that I was gifted with coming to an understanding of Romans chapter 14, that verse therein that says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, again, the ordinances of the law, but instead is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, taking that definition of the kingdom and going back to our text here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first love, peace, and joy, or love, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit, And his righteousness, again, take notice of that, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. That we should not be anxious for anything, but instead the providence of God will be ours when we seek first love, peace, and righteousness, and his righteousness, all things will be given. How beautiful of a reality is that? If you don't mind, I'd like to preface this prayer, uh, this sermon with a prayer and... uh, Just ask that God would invigorate and edify us. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for the spirit. We thank you for your truth, Lord. We thank you for the scriptures that have been compiled for our edification. This morning, Lord, may you be glorified and may we be edified. As we look about in your word, finding application for our lives today, may we rightly divide your word, Lord, so that we would not be ashamed and come out of this giving you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I'd like to start off this morning's message by bringing us to the text in focus, which is going to be Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. I'm going to be sharing from my New King James translation. I know many here in the congregation use New American Standard. Starting at verse 20, and I want to read through the text, and then I'm going to go back and detail some things that we need to consider. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel shall go before thee to bring thee into the Amorites and to the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless your bread and your water, and I will take away sicknesses from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast They are young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before you, 
and will destroy all the people to whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and those that are before thee. I will not drive them out before thee in one year, unless the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little by little, I will drive them out before thee until thou hast increased and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before thee. Thou shalt not make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This brings us right back into the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites after Sinai, which we have been reviewing for quite a few weeks now in our thinking through the scriptures. God's going before Israel to prepare a land for them, the land of Canaan, a land that was currently possessed by groups such as the Amorites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Canaanites, and Jebusites, which were all semi-nomadic people living in that early Mesopotamian region, ultimately idol worshippers. God is going to bring them into the land of these idol worshippers. He has set the bounds and he's done this work for them and he's going before them to establish them in it. Behold, take notice, I have sent an angel before you. In the New Testament, I imagine most Christians would agree with the correlation that the angel that goes before Israel to be with them during that wilderness wandering and to lead them into the land is the Holy Spirit. I know some have offered up that it could quite possibly also be a pre-incarnate Christ, an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. It is that set-apart spirit, that spirit of God, the Father, by way he does his work. That spirit is the means by which the Father does his work, especially in the lives of believers in his covenant. You might say, in the old covenant, the angel went before them. In the new covenant, the angel is within us. Before I make a point about verse 2, I'd like to explain the goal of my message. I happen to believe there is very informative modern application to this portion of the wilderness journey. As I have been pointing out, there has been all throughout the journey, ultimately in agreement with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, wherein he says that these exam- these things were written for our admonishment, for our example, those upon whom the ends of the ages had come. Again, talking about that generation there in the first century. Those that lived in that critical time in the first century, what many refer to as the time of fulfillment, would come to see the promised land. They would be the generation that would enter into the promised land. And also us, just like when Israel ultimately arrived in the land, they settled, they established themselves, they would utilize the wisdom given to the law, given to them in the law, for teachings, application, and prophecies. I don't believe it to be too far off to apply that wisdom to us today. Who, yes, are no longer journeying toward a promised land, But understand in and through Jesus Christ, we have arrived at the true land, the true Sabbath, the true rest, the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, as Brother Glenn Hill rightly noted in his message by the title, From Hoping to Having. All of that said, I want to outline the points made in the original Exodus for us as we go through this text here in the book 
of Exodus chapter 23. All the while marking out wisdom, I imagine the saints in the New Testament would have rightly divided to apply to themselves and how thus we should do that as well. So here, taking a look at Exodus 23 verse 22, 21. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. This beware of him language should remind us of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the often mentioned Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. For the beginning, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We also see in Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. So we want to gain wisdom. What we're going to see here in this text is this is wisdom. The Apostle Paul would have understood this as wisdom. We're going to understand this as wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. And then when we get that wisdom, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of it, and obviously the full wisdom of God after that, we then need to gain an understanding of the wisdom, rightly apply that wisdom. That's going to be our goal this morning. Interestingly enough, the very next point God makes is that they, he will give them victory over their enemies. In the literal Exodus event, this was the nations we had mentioned before, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. It would be rightly noted that the nations were the Satan, the adversary that was attacking them. Just as in the first century and today, there have been many different adversaries, the literal meaning of that word Satan, revealed against the people of God. In my book, Wicked, I actually detail that study for you in regards to Satan. It's a lot more than I am going to mention this morning. However, again, I, I give you that study to understand the adversaries that have been set up against God's people all throughout the scriptures. When it comes to the overarching story of God's providence and his presence with his people today, the Satan, the enemy that has been completely destroyed, is the carnal mind. And its victory over God's people that was made manifest through the law, what became known as a ministration of death. Not so with the new covenant. Our wisdom of God through Jesus Christ leads to no condemnation. Romans 8.1 All promises are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 And our triumphant procession, our procession in following after him is triumphant. It's victorious. It's not leading us to death. It's leading us to life and life everlasting. We see this point made in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. So we would more so find our identity today in the old covenant type of the people being in the land. You might say, like into the days of Solomon. In the days of Solomon, we read in 1 Kings 4.20 that the people were happy and rejoiced in the fulfillment of God's promises to them. We would agree that one much greater than Solomon is here. Amen. Those people that lived in the land found their wisdom from the journeying of their ancestors. If you were living in Solomon's time, you would have looked back to the time of the Exodus and gained wisdom from that journey. How much more so should we, who are the people of God's spirit, God's providence, and have spiritual ancestors, how much more should we be looking back on their journey? understanding their journey, giving glory to God by understanding their journey and applying that wisdom to our lives by living in the fulfilled wisdom of what they labored toward. You see, the word providence 
means care, concern, to take care of. And the word presence is to be with, to be in close proximity to, to have the authority of someone or access. Again, if you're with me and we go to my house, you being with me will have the right to enter into my house. The blessing that comes if I'm blessed, obviously, and you're around me, you're going to be blessed. The fellowship of being with me. This is presence. This is the idea we should get when we talk about presence, especially the presence of God. When we continue in our text and we take a look at verses 24 through 33, we see how the providence and presence of the, the providence and presence of God should work in the lives of believers. Let's take a look at the text here. Verse 24. Thou shalt not bow down their gods, nor serve them, nor to do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and break down their images. If you're familiar with my teachings, you know that I've spoken a lot about innate idolatry. In the book Wicked, I actually identify innate idolatry as the Satan that is attacking us. This um, inner force that seems to lead us to carnality, lead us to lean upon our own understanding, and worse yet, to lean upon the false understandings fostered by men. Traditions of men. We all too easily are captivated by those things. I love what John Calvin had said. He said that the human heart is the manufacturer of idols. So, no idolatry. This is a command to beware that you have an innate idolatry within you that will lead you away from this promise, lead you away from focusing on my angel that has gone before you. Verses 25, uh, and then we shall serve the Lord our God and be blessed in our bread and our water and he will take the sickness from away, away from us and none of nobody will cast their young nor be barren in the land for God will fulfill the days. This brings us back to that promise in Isaiah 65 or brings us forward to that promise in Isaiah 65 regarding the new heavens and the new earth and how one will not die, a child will not die young, the old will not die, you know, all this imagery they use there regarding life that will be found in the new heavens and new earth. Not a covenant of death. God will go before them. He will send his fear before them and will destroy all the people who come out against them and their enemies will turn away from them. Hornets will go into the land. Again, there's such magnitude. God will do miraculous things to drive out these people. Serve God and your your bread will be blessed, your water will be blessed, your sickness will be blessed, the populace will flourish, the fear of the Lord will go before you, he will be an adversary to your enemies, they will turn around and go the other way, because he will do mighty things, and he will do this in a way that is good for you. Amen. Consider this, not in a way that you see fit, you know, I know this is going to, I'm going to remind us this morning, I want us to... Think about the times that we've seen the providence of God. I want you to think about those moments. Begin to think about that in your life. Where have you seen the providence of God work? And I know in our praises and prayers this morning, we made known a couple of those examples in personal lives of where we've seen the providence of God. So I want you all to be thinking about those things. God does it in a way. It's not the way that we saw fit. I know the way that I've seen God work in my life wasn't always the way that I thought it should be done. Thank God. It's not always something that is comfortable. Again, imagine being these people. They want God to just go in there and wipe these people out. They want them to do it his way. Or their way. They don't want him to do it his way. They want him to do it their way. A lot of faith. Why can't you just show us and just do it? So it's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be done our way. 
but it's a way that is good for you and done by his providential wisdom. I'll give you the proof text for that. Look at verses 29 and 30 here in Exodus 23. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, unless the land becomes desolate and the beasts of the field will multiply against you. But little by little I will drive them out from before you until you increase and inherit the land. Catch the significance of that. So, of course, you know, you would want, God, you're going to bring me into the land. Get rid of my enemies so we don't have to deal with those people when we get there. But see, God, he knows better than us. And I know we can all testify to this in our lives where we thought it should be done a certain way, but then we've seen how God did it his way. God says to them, I'm going to do it in my wisdom. I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to bring you in the land, but I'm going to do so in a providential way that you won't get attacked by the animals around you. Because you don't realize what is good for you all the time. And then notice this in verse 31. He will set your bounds. He will set your bounds. How often do we try to set our own bounds? This reminds me of that prayer of Jabez that we see in the book of Chronicles where Jabez says, Lord, enlarge my borders. Lord, enlarge my borders. It's not about what I think God should be doing. It's not about the new job that I think God should give me. It's not about... You know, how I think a certain situation should have went about. It's not about how I want the church to grow. It's God setting the bounds because he's the sovereign one and it's his providence and presence that we so desire. And then notice again here in verses 32 through 33, repeating that same point there from verse 24. Cautionary wisdom about making covenants and undue influence because we get affected by those around us. Think about our world today. Our world doesn't want us to focus on the angel that has gone before us, doesn't want us to see the Holy Spirit working in our lives, doesn't want us to see the providence and the presence of God. It's almost foolish to believe in those things. Yet that's what we're called to. We're not called to make covenants with the world, agreements with the world. We're not called to make covenants with false gods. We're not called to sin against God and serve the other gods and allow that to become a snare to us. That could be the message in and of itself this morning. We've already seen two good messages from Matthew chapter 6 and now here from Exodus chapter 23. God's providence, his care, his concern for his people. What I'd like to do is I'd like to share some wisdom I found as I sort through and study through this topic. First, I'd like to share a quote from John Piper. And before I do that, I'm sure we're all familiar with John Piper, a pretty renowned Reformed preacher. There's a quote by him that I always recite, which I believe to be the very foundation of the gospel. And I want to make sure I share that with us this morning. For God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. That is a promise we need to cling to. We need to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And I believe, again, as a mature Christian, the way that we do that is by becoming effective and fruitful in the use of the knowledge of God. And we see exactly how to do that there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Another quote, though, this morning that I want to share from John Piper is a quote that John Piper says uh, that shares his insight regarding the importance of God's word and our discerning his will for our lives. Listen to what he says. The trajectory of a rocket is the path in which it will follow on the basis of its shape, speed, weight, and direction. You can know ahead of time where that rocket is going if you understand its trajectory. That's the way it is with God's word. The Bible does not give us detailed descriptions of God's will for our lives. But if we listen carefully and study its shape and its speed, its weight and its direction, we will see the trajectories that give guidance and strength and faith all throughout the scriptures. Ultimately, John Piper reminds us to be 
meditative students of God's word. And that's pretty much what we've been doing as we've been thinking through the scriptures. In my going through the thoughts on God's providence, I turned to some sermons by Prince of Preacher, Preachers Charles Spurgeon. He preached a sermon titled Providence on April 11th, 1858. And he made some insights I would like us to consider to build on the insights that we have already gained from a simple reading of the scriptures. Again, that shape, weight, speed, and direction of the scriptures. Spurgeon says, Some there may be who deny providence altogether. I cannot conceive that there were any partakers of the scene so which I experienced who could have done so. This I know, if I had been an unbeliever to this day in the doctrine of the supervision and wise care of God, I must have been a believer in it in this hour. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. He has been very gracious to us and remembered us for good. Prior to this statement, Charles Spurgeon had shared a scene in which he had seen the mighty hand of God at work in a saving way from a catastrophe that he could, know, could not explain any other way than seeing the sovereign hand, the providential hand of God. Terry shared with us in her prayers how she's been trusting God in relation to a job, in her job situation. And she had some moments of frustration, right? But she trusted in God's providence and look at how beautifully it came about. Steve had shared a story of a family story and how the situation could have went much different had it worked out the way that he had anticipated it working out. However, God in his sovereignty, God in his providential care, worked that situation out as he saw fit and look how beautiful it turned out. Steve praising about it. My prayers are with your family, Steve. I ask you this morning, consider these moments in your life. Dare I say, consider every moment in your life as revelation of the fact that God has been very gracious to us and remembered us for good. Surely I can have someone say a praise with me on that, that God has been good to us and gracious to us. Consider this next point Spurgeon says. We must, if we would be true believers in God and, avo- and would avoid all atheism, give to him the kingship in three kingdoms of creation, grace, and providence. It is in the last, however, that I think we are most apt to forget him. We may easily see God in creation if we be at all enlightened, and if saved, we cannot avoid confessing that salvation is of the Lord alone. The very way in which we are saved and the effect of grace in our hearts always compels us to feel that God is just. But providence is such a checkered thing. And you and I are so prone to misjudge God and to come to rash conclusions concerning his dealings with us that perhaps this is the greatest stronghold of our natural atheism. We're going to return to that point there in a moment. A doubt of God's dealings with us in the arrangements of outward affairs. Getting a bit more intimate with the details in our lives, Spurgeon says, most men will acknowledge that the earthquake, the hurricane, The devastation of war, the ravages of pestilence come from the hand of God. We find most men will very willingly confess that God is the God of the hills, but they forget that he is also the Lord of the valleys. They will grant that he deals with great masses, but not with individuals, with seas in bulk, but not with drops. Most men forget, however, 
that the fact that they believe in the providence of God being in great things involves a providence in the little things. For it were an inconsistent belief that the mass were in God's hands while the Adam was left to chance. It is indeed a belief that contradicts itself. We must believe all chance or else all God. We must have all ordained and arranged or else we must have everything left to the wind, the whirlwind of chance and accident. But I believe that it is in the little things we fail to see God. I remember a book I had read quite a few years back from Pastor Craig Groeschel from Life Church in Oklahoma. A few, and the book was called The Christian Atheist, and it usually gets similar faces. Um, I'll explain. What a Christian atheist would be would be somebody that puts on the title Christian or says that they're a, con- a Christian or confesses the Lord Jesus, but does not live as though they truly believe in the power and the truth of Jesus Christ in their life. Pastor Craig challenged, when we live by faith, we believe that God has everything under control. But if we start to worry, how we live says the opposite, that we don't believe God has everything under control. He also couples that with a very practical piece of wisdom. No matter what I feel, I hold the assurance that God never leaves me. Catch the power of that. No matter what I feel, because I know the truth of God, I know what has gone before me. No matter what I feel, I hold the assurance that God never leaves me. Imagine that. When we heed the wisdom of God regarding what he has done for us, again, the Apostle Peter says everything, and yes, I'm that person that underlines everything in my Bible. The word everything. Everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. We can trust him down to the little things. No matter our feelings, we must say, God's providence and presence is with me. Christian author and speaker David Tripp said, Your rest is not to be found in figuring out your life, but in trusting the one who has figured it out for your good and his glory. So in conclusion this morning, that angel has gone before us. That angel has allowed the way to be kept, and perfectly we all know that way is Jesus Christ. That way has been kept. God's faithfulness has been shown. And in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in the place God has prepared for those who love him. This beautiful new covenant. A place wherein all things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to us. And if you need that proof text again, that's 2 Peter chapter 1. We sure do have a blessed reality. Prayerfully, I have convicted you in two ways this morning. One, I've convicted you to offer a praise of fruitful lips, taking note of where God has worked in his sovereignty in your life, his providence and presence in your life. Lift up praises that God so desires in that regard. And two, that our experience of God's providence and presence is made manifest by our setting our eyes on his work, his work, his righteousness, his kingdom. The work is done. God did it himself. The angel has gone before us. But that we would endeavor to live as a people who make that providence and presence known. In Psalm chapter 101, verse 3, it says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. That worthless thing to be setting before your eyes is your presuppositions and leaning upon your own understanding, is your doubt and despair rather than your trust in the presence and in the providence of God. 
The worthless thing is taking your eyes off the angel that has gone before you. It's taking your eyes off the wisdom that God has already accomplished the work. We have been moved from hoping to heaven. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. We see the same thing in Psalm 119. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see the revealing of how that all comes together. How all of that no worthless thing. What is the thing that we therefore must keep before our eyes? And here in Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You ready? Setting, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and the author of our faith. That's what we are to set our eyes on. It's not about us running the race. It's not about what we desire. It's not about our comfort. It's not about what we expect God to do. It's about trusting in his providence that he has already made known. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for going before us. We thank you for being with us. We thank you, Lord, that you have indeed given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. All that is required is our trust and our faith. We know that you are not pleased without faith, Lord. It is impossible to please the Lord without faith. So invigorate us, Lord. Give us faith. Increase our faith. Allow us to look to you and your providence. Allow us to trust in you and your providence so that we may continue to see the blessings in our land, in your land, in the land, Lord in Christ. Thank you. Lord, we magnify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.